Well, good morning to you. And let me add to the, the welcome you've already received this morning. I am conscious that there are some visitors with us today, and to you we do extend a, a particularly warm welcome as you join with us. We have, as a church, been going through this Essential Word series. It's something that's going to take us from Genesis to Revelation through the whole of this year. Uh, and today we find ourselves in one of the major prophets. It's probably quite an understatement to say that the Bible is a fascinating book. It's a library of 66 books, a publication in two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament. This morning on our journey through Essential 100, we reached the book of Isaiah. And the book of Isaiah is in itself a very fascinating book. It is probably one of the most attested books in the whole of the Old Testament. Back in 1948, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, they included a copy of this book that dated from 100 BC, which was about a thousand years older than the next oldest copy, which dated from about 900 AD. Now, we all know that chapters and verses of the Bible are not inspired. But whoever divided Isaiah into chapters and verses did something quite fascinating, though I doubt if they did it deliberately. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah, the same number as the books of the Bible. They divided Isaiah into two parts, 39 chapters in part 1 and 27 chapters in part 2. And as you can see, that just happens to be that the Old Testament has 39 books and the New Testament 27. So all those numbers are very relational. Almost all commentators agree that the first 39 chapters of Isaiah summarize the message of the Old Testament. And the message of the last 27 chapters summarize exactly the message of the New Testament. Indeed, someone has said that if you took the whole Bible and squeezed it into one book, you'd finish up with the book of Isaiah. It has even been called the Bible in miniature. Even more interesting is the fact that part two, which would be chapters 40 to 66, part two of Isaiah divides into three sections, each of nine chapters. 40 to 48, as you see there, having as, as its theme the comforting of God's people. 49 to 57, having as its theme the servant of the Lord who dies and rises again. And from 58 to 66, there about the future glory. And it's to that middle section that we turn our attention this morning. And if you take the middle section of that section, chapters 52 to 54, we have at the heart of that middle section, chapter 53, and the key verse, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And if we think that the structure of the book of Isaiah is fascinating... Then, for me, chapters 52 and 53 are nothing short of remarkable. Chapters and verses, as I've already said, are man-made. 
therefore not inspired. But what is incredibly remarkable here is that these verses in chapters 52 and 53 were written some 700 years before the events actually happened, before the prophecy was actually fulfilled. Isaac Watts, who wrote many of the great hymns we still use, hymns such as, O God, our help in ages past, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun, and when I survey the wondrous cross. Isaac Watts is perhaps most famous for the answer he gave to the question, Who was the prophet Isaiah? And Watts' answer was, The one who spoke more about Jesus Christ than all the rest. 700 years before Jesus came to earth, Isaiah is here predicting the events of his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. And even his return in glory is predicted long before his first coming. And all of that is contained in what we're going to be looking at this morning, and it's called the Servant Song. I want to suggest this morning that Here in this servant song, we have a song of five verses, with each verse of the song covering three verses of Isaiah 52 and 53. And we'll read these verses as we come to them. So please keep your Bibles open at page 740 in the Pew Bibles, or Isaiah 52 and 53. And first of all, we're going to read the the first verse of this five-verse song, and that's in chapter 52 and at verse 13. Isaiah 52 and at verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. These verses, this very first verse of the servant song, contain the words of God. It's God who says, see. Or in the authorized version, behold, see my servant, see, behold, pay attention, observe with care, my servant. And that's what I'd like you to do this morning. I'd like to ask you to do that this morning, perhaps in a fresh way, perhaps in a new way, maybe even for the first time, to see him in ways you've never seen him before. In a few moments, we are going to be observing the Lord's table, which is, as you can see, prepared for us here this morning. And as we come to this table, I want to encourage us all to think again, to look again at this suffering servant in ways that refresh our hearts and refresh our minds. God tells us through Isaiah that his servant will be raised and lifted up. He will be highly exalted, it says here in this little passage we read together. Christ will be raised, as we see in the resurrection. Christ will be lifted up, as we see at Calvary and in his ascension. And Christ will be highly exalted as he takes his place in heaven. 
But reading on in those verses, before this exaltation takes place, God announces in verse 14 that his servant will be humiliated. And his appearance and his features will become so disfigured by abuse that people will hardly recognize him. God tells us that kings and other leaders will begin to understand what they hadn't understood up to this very point. And God tells us that his servant will sprinkle many nations. And that phrase used here means to sprinkle as in to declare clean from disease. Leviticus chapter 14 describes the process whereby one who has been healed from leprosy or some other disease that was considered contagious could be declared clean by the priests. I have it on the screen for you. Leviticus chapter 14 verses 2 to 7. These are the regulations for the diseased person at the time of the ceremonial cleansing when he is brought to the priest. The priest is to go outside the camp and examine him. If the person has been healed of his infectious skin disease, the priest shall order that two live clean birds and some cedar wood, scarlet yarn and hyssop be brought for the one to be cleansed. Then the priest shall order that one of the birds be killed over fresh water in a clay pot. He is then to take the live bird and dip it together with the cedar wood, the scarlet yarn and the hyssop into the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Seven times he shall sprinkle the one to be cleansed of the infectious disease and pronounce him clean. Then he is to release the live bird into the open fields. And in the same way, God is telling us that his servant, Jesus Christ, by the sprinkling, by the shedding of his blood, will provide for our cleansing from a disease far worse than leprosy. That disease, of course, is sin. Now let's turn to verse 2 of the song, and we find this in the first three verses of chapter 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And in this second verse of our song, we see a very brief summary of the servant's life. People from Isaiah's day and all the way down through history and some even up until the days in which we live, people are unwilling to believe in or even countenance the thought of a suffering servant. And they're even more unwilling to consider that through suffering, the servant will provide salvation for many. Our text asks the question, who has believed our message? And no doubt there were plenty of sceptics in Isaiah's day. Just as I'm sure there were plenty of sceptics on the day that Christ actually fulfilled this prophecy and paid the ultimate sacrifice when he was crucified. 
And we all know that there are still many people who doubt, even today. Verse 2 tells us that the servant grew up like a tender shoot. And the word that's translated as tender shoot actually has the meaning of a plant that sprouts new growth after the tree has died. And maybe, like me, you've seen a tree trunk after the tree has been cut down. And by all accounts, when you look at that tree, it seems dead. But then over time, and quite suddenly, new, fresh shoots of green will begin to come out of something that once seemed dead. And that's how it was when Christ came over 2,000 years ago. History tells us that it was an extremely dark time in history. Spiritually, financially, politically, in almost every way. But Christ came bringing new life out of something dead. Earlier on in Isaiah, he foretold that when he said in chapter 11, verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. And verse 2 also says that Christ was like a root out of dry ground. This doesn't refer to the land around Galilee at that time. It's a reference to the family tree of Jesus Christ. Even though he is in the line of David, his father was a poor carpenter, his mother a young virgin. And it was in these humble circumstances that Christ would, to use the words of Isaiah, take root. Isaiah also tells us that Christ had no special beauty or majesty. He wasn't born in a castle to parents who were king or queen. He wasn't born in an important capital city to parents who were high religious leaders. Jesus was, in fact, born to poor parents in a part of the country that was despised, Nazareth, a town that people said nothing good can come from there. He lived in a humble dwelling. He worked at a trade. And there is certainly nothing about his life and his beginnings to suggest that he might become a king in that part of the land, let alone Messiah of all mankind. Coming to 53 verse 3 we read, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He came and he began to minister to these people. And the religious establishment refused to accept him. You'll remember in John's Gospel, chapter 1 at verse 11, that he came to his own and his own didn't want to know him. He was cursed. He was falsely accused of things. He was hated. And although there were a few people who accepted him and followed him, many people esteemed him not. They didn't want to know him. Let's read the next three verses, verses 4 to 6 of chapter 53. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, 
have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has led on him the iniquity of us all. And in in this third group of verses, we find one of the most profound passages in all of Scripture. Verses that bring significant meaning to the Lord's table, and which also bring into focus the doctrine of substitution. Now, I reckon that everyone is, in one way or another, familiar with substitution. In school, there are substitute teachers. In rugby or football or other sports, there is substitution, where one player takes the place of another. In theological terms, it means that Christ was our substitute. He stepped in and bore the punishment for sin that should have been ours. And in the original language, the the words that are used here are very emphatic. Surely he took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. We considered him stricken by God. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace and salvation was given to him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Christ suffered and died, not because he had done anything wrong, and not even because he ran up against the religious establishment of the day. Christ suffered and died because some way, somehow, someone must pay the price for sin. There must be punishment for sin. And Christ, in his love, stepped in and he paid the ultimate price so that you and I didn't have to. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And God the Father sacrificed his own Son to pay the price of our sin. And that's not just Old Testament theology. We find it in the New Testament as well. I'm just going to use three Uh, references to illustrate that in 2 Corinthians 5 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God Galatians 3 and 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us and those familiar verses in 1 Peter 3 18 For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. But surely that's not fair. Someone who hasn't done anything wrong, why should he be punished? That goes against the grain of all that we believe about fairness. I know in our family, our children were always quick to point out when they believed that fairness hadn't been dished out. And I'm sure that today's children are no different. That's not fair. Colin got to stay up late. That's not fair. You didn't take me to McDonald's. That's not fair. Denise sat by the window on the way there. Now it's my turn. That's not fair. That's not fair. You recognize it, even in your own family. But aren't you glad this morning that when Christ was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane that he said, Nevertheless, Father, 
not my will, but your will be done. He certainly would have been correct if instead he would have turned, to his, turned his face to heaven and said, that's not fair. I didn't do anything wrong. Why should I have to go through all that pain and punishment for something I didn't do? I won't do it. That's not fair. Let them suffer for their own sin. Leave me out of that, out of this. But Christ didn't do that. The pain was his. The suffering was his. Taking the punishment for our sin was his. But the sin was ours, not his. And isn't it true that when one of our children is injured and has to go through something painful, we would gladly step in and become their substitute if we could. If we could, we would endure endure their surgery. We would endure their pain. Who knows, we might even consider suffering their death if that was required. Because we love our children so much. But with Christ, the situation is different. He didn't endure suffering as a substitute for a family member whom he loved deeply. He endured all that suffering and carried all that sin for people who were murderers, robbers, adulterers. He died for the very people who were crucifying him. He died for people like you and like me. If I were in a hospital room and the medics came to me and said, we need to do a heart transplant. Your heart is just fine. But there's a guy down in prison and he's dying. He's got HIV AIDS. He's a drug user. He's a convicted criminal. His heart is in such a mess. It's his own fault. But we just want to take your healthy heart and give it to that guy so that he can live. I reckon that my response, and probably yours, would be, sorry, but that's just not fair. I've taken pretty good care of my heart. He's made his own bed. Now let him lie in it. You reap what you sow. That's the decision that Christ was faced with. Giving up his life for sinful people. He had no guarantee that those people would ever appreciate it. Or even accept it. But he did it anyway. Because he loved them. And he wanted them to have an opportunity. For a new life. Verse 4. Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And these verses refer to the servant's silence. The culture of those days demanded that a servant didn't talk back. He or she, as a servant, must submit to the will of his or her mistress or mistress. 
And Jesus Christ was silent before those who accused him and those who assaulted him. He was silent before Caiaphas. He was silent before the chief priests and elders. He was silent before Pilate. And he was silent before Herod. First Peter 2 reminds us that Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. A few weeks ago on a Sunday evening, David shared with us from Acts chapter 8 the story of the Ethiopian treasurer who was found sitting in his chariot reading from this very passage in Isaiah 53. And what impressed that Ethiopian treasurer treasure, were these very words that we find in this passage. Acts chapter 8 records them. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. And who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth. But notice too that Jesus Christ was crucified with criminals and as a criminal himself. It was the custom that his dead body would be left unburied. But God had other plans, and we read of them in John 19. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which none had ever been led. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they led Jesus there. Joseph of Arimathea And Nicodemus would never have been allowed to take away the body if the victim hadn't been dead. Roman law and Roman authorities wouldn't have permitted that. And isn't it amazing how God was so wonderfully fulfilling what we're reading about this morning here in the prophecy of Isaiah? Now we come to the fifth and final verse. Let's read it. Verse 10 of chapter 53. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And in these closing verses of chapter 53, 
Isaiah goes on to explain the cross from God's point of view. And what an opening to verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And you may well remember that Peter, in his memorable address to the crowd in Acts chapter 2, picks up this very theme when he says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And Jesus' death was no accident. An injustice, yes, but no accident. His death was determined beforehand by God, and he was the sacrifice for the sins of the world. But the second half of verse 10 reminds us that he didn't remain dead. It says, he shall prolong his days. The servant would be resurrected and live forever. And in his resurrection, he triumphed over every enemy, even the enemy of death itself. And by doing so, claims victory over death forever. Another outcome of this victory is found in verse 10. He shall see his seed or his descendants. And in the culture of that day, to die childless was a shame to the Jews. But as the second half of verse 11 reminds us, Jesus gave birth to a spiritual family because of what he accomplished on the cross at Calvary. It's the writer to the Hebrews that very helpfully puts it in these words. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Folks, my time is gone and so much more could and perhaps should be said about these chapters in Isaiah. And I want to finish with a slide that we used earlier. Surely he took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. We considered him stricken by God, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace and salvation was given to him, and by his wounds we are healed. But this time, as we come to the table, as we come to a time of personal reflection let's read those words again only slightly amended surely he took up my infirmities he carried my sorrows I considered him stricken by God but he was pierced for my transgressions 
He was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brought me peace and salvation was given to him. And by his wounds, I am healed.